Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear, is hearing several high-profile cases this term. From the University of Georgia, law professor Sonia West offers insight into what the justices will hear. Also, a horrific chapter not only in the nation but Atlanta's history, convict leasing, what the Truth and Transformation Initiative led by the National Center for Civil and Human Rights will present. Those conversations coming up in a moment, but we'll begin with this. Remembrances are being offered on the passing of former Georgia Democratic Senator and Veterans Administrator Max Cleland, who died today. He was 79 years old. Cleland, a Vietnam veteran, entered politics back in 1971. But three years earlier, he would be severely injured in the war by grenade. Cleland would have both legs amputated above the knee and his right forearm. He served in the Georgia Senate and, when Jimmy Carter was elected president, was appointed head of the VA. In a statement from former president and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter, it reads in part, quote, Rosalind and I joined thousands of Americans in mourning the loss of our dear friend Max Cleland, a true American hero who was no stranger to sacrifice. Max gave of his talents and service as a Georgia state senator, secretary of state, head of the VA, and U.S. senator. We are grateful for his commitment to the citizens of the United States, but also for the personal role he played in our lives, close quote. From former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin, she said of Cleland, he was one of my mentors as I began my public service as mayor. I am forever grateful for his contributions to the nation and state, and especially his willingness to impart so much wisdom to me as a new mayor. And also, Democratic State Senator Nan Orrock spoke of Cleveland's, Cleveland's voting rights advocacy today down at the Capitol. He's a real model of leadership and a man who was incredibly dedicated to everybody having the right to vote, having access to the ballot, and making voting a process that was welcoming and inviting, not exclusive and exclusionary. Veteran political reporter and former WAB host Dennis O'Hare has covered Georgia politics for decades. First of all, it's a very sad day for Georgia. Um, whatever your political party, whatever your political beliefs, Max Cleland was a person who believed in service. He loved people and the idea of service that brought him into the army and through what happened to him and then into politics was fundamental to who he was. And, um, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that I think all of us maybe should take a moment and think about you know, how much better our lives are because of Max Cleland and people like him, whatever their party or politics, who believe in service. And joining me now with more is DeKalb County CEO, Michael Thurman. CEO Thurman, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me, Rose. And first of all, our condolences on the passing of your friend, Max Cleland. I know you knew him for many, many years. Uh, absolutely. I met him while I was still in college in Augusta at Payne College. And uh, over the years, he was always someone who encouraged me, uh, particularly during the damn times of my career. Uh, when I lost uh, elections, he was always one of the first people to call and encourage me to continue to work hard and strive and to try to overcome the defeat and continue to work in public service. He was just an amazing human being. Uh, who contributed so much to our state and the nation and in the world as well. Much is always written about Max Cleland, about his injuries, obviously, that he suffered. 
uh, in the Vietnam War. But I, in the research and the history that I know of him, and, and speaking to him just once throughout my career as a journalist, he never wanted to use that as an excuse. But he did say, CEO Thurman, that recovering from the injury, not just the physical recovery, but the mental recovery, being in politics was sort of cathartic for him as well. He had this indomitable spirit. And no matter what challenges you may have been facing, this man never relented. Uh, he continued uh, to encourage and inspire and his, just his attitude and his persona uh, just would fill up a room. And he never, in publicly or privately, that I talked to him, uh, talked about being sorry for himself because of his injuries. And he was just a role model. Uh, for all people of all political stripes, whatever you may be, uh, you have to recognize this as a unique uh, human being who was, as he wrote in his book, Strong at the Broken Places. One of my most treasured possessions mm -hmm. is an autographed copy of his book, Strong at the Broken Places, uh, where he spoke about his life, his challenges, and more importantly, how he was able to overcome it. You said a moment ago that he was consoling and gave you advice. Uh, what is some of the more mem memorable, I guess, advice and, and t mentoring that he gave to you? Well, That you can share. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, on multiple cases, I ran for the U.S. House of Representatives, and I guess it was 2001 I lost, and then I ran for the Senate in 2010 against John Isaacson, and that was a defeat as well. Uh, but he was always there to encourage me to learn from your mistakes that uh, and your defeats in particular. And one thing he said, you can learn more from getting beat than you can from winning. And to learn how to fall forward, uh, fail forward. When you do fail, you fail forward. You learn from your mistakes and you continue to persevere. Uh, he was just an amazing person. Uh, I think uh, as uh, Shirley Franklin, the former mayor, talked about him uh, heard her comments. He was just an amazing person who reached out uh, to everyone. And I'll tell you one of the more uh, comical and compelling evenings I spent with Max Cleveland, but I'll do that before this interview ends. I won't do it now, but I, I'll, I'll tell you about it, Rose. It can, was an amazing moment. You want to go life. ahead and share? You can go ahead and share a little bit what you can. <laughs> Remember, it's a family <laughs> show. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> no, I was visiting with him when he was a U.S. senator. I think I just got elected labor commissioner a couple of years ago, uh, back in a couple of two years earlier. And uh, I was visiting him at his office and uh, he invited me out. Uh, he had several uh, receptions and uh, a dinner party. Uh, and he invited myself and the person who attended him, who was always with him. And so we decided to go out. And uh, as we were riding around, you know, went to one event, second event, people didn't recognize me as being an elected official because, you know, I was helping them. Uh, I was the, with the wheelchair and helping them in and out. Mm -hmm. So they thought I was his valet. <laughs> and so as we were riding around. Uh, Max said, you know, you make me feel like Ironside. I don't know that you remember Ironside. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, with the black guy. So that was me. So, <laughs> But at the end of the evening, Rose, you know, and I was thinking about this after you called me and asked me to come on. I'm sitting there in Georgetown in this house with 30 members of the U.S. Senate. Mm. I'm, I'm in this room with Strom Thurmond, <laughs> Teddy Kennedy, Max Cleland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob Dole and the, the, they all, the OGs at that time yeah but you know and it was just and they were ignoring me right because I'm a nobody and I'm just his ballet and, <laughs> <laughs> and so See the entire Thurman. night that was my role uh, to be and so we laughed and we talked about that forever to the, to the last time I talked to him we were still talking about that night uh, that I, that he was Ironside, and I can't remember the <laughs> black guy's name who helped to take care of Ironside. But that was my role that night in Washington, sitting in a room with Strom Thurmond and Teddy Kennedy and 30 members of the Senate. Hey, Strom Thurmond had some secrets that he didn't tell nobody until later. <laughs> yeah, I did kind of go up to him and ask him, I said, so you think we might be related? You know, it was a big joke. <laughs> but later we found out it really wasn't that big of a joke. Right. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Shirley Franklin telling me that um, 
Max Cleland was uh, her first official visitor on her first day in the, in the office. So, what is his legacy? I know often when folks are, are asked this question when they are, are still with us, some folks don't like to talk about it, and they say, you know, it is what it is. And others say, if you worry about your legacy, then you don't have one. Um, but what <laughs> is Max Cleveland's legacy through your lens? Well, first, as the KF CEO, we're so proud that he was basically grew up. He grew up in Lithonia, Georgia, here in DeKalb County. Uh, he's one of the favorite sons of our county who made such a huge impact uh, on the world. So DeKalb County, and he loved Lithonia, he loved DeKalb, because we talked about it often. But I think his legacy uh, speaks to everyone and uh, how you can overcome any obstacle placed in your path and how you can continue to pursue your dreams, your hopes, and continue to make an impact uh, on this world. That's his legacy, this indomitable spirit of trying and wanting to make a difference and to contribute uh, through public service. Uh, he was a unique person, uh, he, and he will be remembered as one of the most uh, compelling and one of the most influential politicians we've had uh, that, em that emerged from uh, the state of Georgia. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman on the passing of former Georgia Democratic Senator and Veterans Administrator Max Cleland. CEO Thurman, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. You call me CEO, but just in the future, refer to me as Max Cleveland Valet. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. On October 13th, 2009, Max Cleland spoke at the Carter Center about his memoir, Heart of a Patriot. And he talked about the sting of losing his Senate seat in 2002 to Republican Saxby Chambliss. But he also added this. There was a terrifying time for Georgians. Uh, for, my, for myself, um, I went down like a rock. Uh, I had been in public life, been in public service, and it had been meaningful and powerful for me. It had helped me overcome the grievous wounds of literally almost dying in Vietnam and my name being on that wall up in Washington among the 58,000 dead from that era. Uh, but um, I made it back. Uh, and so public service and public life became uh, my way of coping. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The U.S. Supreme Court's fall term is underway, and the justices are hearing an array of high-profile cases, from abortion to gun rights and religious rights. What cases could be decided with a historic ruling? Join me now as a returning guest, Professor Sonia West is the Otis Brumley Distinguished Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. She focuses on issues involving the, involving the First Amendment and the United States Supreme Court. Professor West, welcome back. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you do such a great explanation of how the nation's high court operates and all of its procedures. And with that, I kind of want to begin with a bit of a primer for our listeners. How does a case make it to the Supreme Court? What is the process for that? Well, the process is it's an uphill one. The court actually takes an exceedingly small number of cases every year from the people who ask it to hear a review of its case. And so it has a, a selective um, process. The court doesn't have to take almost any cases. There's very few cases that it's required by law to take. Most of the time it gets to pick and choose uh, and it's quite choosy. Uh, and so um, thousands and thousands of people uh, apply. They 
file a petition with the court asking them to hear their case. They have to sort of make their make their arguments for why the court should spend its time on their case, which often involve, you know, trying to situate how their case raises an important issue that will affect not just the people involved in that particular situation, but rather a sort of pressing is legal issue that would affect lots of people throughout the country, one of which there's maybe some confusion about the correct out, you know, answer um, or that there's you know, some sort of harm that's being caused by the way it's being currently uh, interpreted. And then the court has to vote of the nine justices. It takes four justices to agree to hear a case. That part's a little mysterious. They don't tell us very much usually about how that process uh, goes or how that voting goes, but then they you know, release a, a list of telling us which cases that they're going to hear. And then, and then those end up being sort of the, the special chosen cases that the court will have full briefing and oral arguments and, and, and issue full opinions about that, and then, which is the part we usually you know, hear the most about. And often, it, not all the time, but I would say the majority of the time, these are cases that uh, involve some type of decision from obviously a lower court or another court as well, correct? Right. That's usually the the stance, not always, but uh, usually it's that we've had either a state Supreme Court or a federal court of appeals that has issued some kind of decision. And then the court is reviewing what they have done occasionally, um, particularly when we have the federal government. Uh, we've had some instances where they've kind of you know, skipped over that step and the court has agreed to decide a case before the lower courts have really grappled with it. But usually they like to come in later. They like to have let it you know, the lower courts uh, think about the problem for a while before they jump in. And if you listen to some of this, and I, I, I try to go back and listen as much as I can, there's no jury, there are no witnesses. It's just folks get up and it's a hearing and they, they make their case or try to make their case. Right. A big difference between the proceedings that go on at the Supreme Court versus a lot of the court uh, scenarios that maybe we're most familiar with, whether from TV or movies or, or you know, or real life, uh, is that these are what we call questions of law and not necessarily questions of fact. Questions of fact are decided by juries or trial court judges, you know, based on uh, the evidence they build a record. So it's only when there's really questions about what is the law here? What is what does this statute mean? What is the constitutional right at issue? What are the boundaries of it? What kinds of things can the state um, or federal government, you know, do or not do? Uh, these are the questions that the Supreme Court um, jumps in on to, to, to help clarify for us. I want to go back to the decision-making process, even though we don't always know just how detailed this is, but is it fair to say that given the current makeup of the court, uh, obviously, which leads which leans heavily uh, conservative, that some of these cases might be deliberate in terms of the selection. Oh, um, sure. I mean, as I said, the sort of selection process is a bit mysterious. The justices don't tell us why they chose to take a case or chose not to take a case. We often uh, usually don't even know what the vote is. Occasionally they come on the record. They decide to come on the record to tell us that you know, they would have taken a case or would have not taken a case. But for the most part, it's all uh, very um, mysterious. But this is really one of the long struggles that the Supreme Court as an institution has had, but I think it's become particularly acute uh, this semester, uh, which is sort of balancing this idea of the Supreme Court as umpires, as Chief Justice Roberts very famously said in his confirmation hearings, you know, they're just taking the law and neutrally applying it, you know, to the cases that are most important and, and making uh, these decisions, or sometimes they're, they're referred to sort of as the oracles, like they sort of are in touch with what the law is, and they can, you know, hand it down for us in this very wise and, and again, neutral uh, way. So there's sort of that image that they certainly like to portray on one hand, and on the other side of that is uh, this idea idea of the court as, you know, the political actors. It's a very political process that puts these justices on uh, the bench as all human beings are. They have political beliefs and, you know, biases uh, that I'm sure are very deeply held, despite, you know, uh, assuming uh, best efforts to set them uh, aside. So the things that they are going to think are the most important, mm -hmm. the issues that they are going to think are causing the biggest harms or um, are, you know, that 
that that perhaps they think the courts got wrong or didn't get wrong. Uh, the 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 plaintiffs, the petitioners whose stories are going to tug at their heartstrings uh, the most, or you know, enrage them uh, the most. Um, these are all things that are, are, are surely are going to impact their decisions because they're just nine human beings, and and um, I think it's you know even even giving sort of the best good faith assumption to them, I think it will be hard for them to uh, set that aside completely. So I'm sure it's a factor. Whether we're talking about abortion or gun rights or voting rights or anything tied to the death penalty. And I actually have a listener that sent a, a question via email that says, why does the Supreme Court often sometimes overturn a state law? Shouldn't state lawmakers know that this is a violation of a constitution? Now, I know that's sort of a broad and I kind of get, I think, what the listener is talking about. But for some folks, that may be baffling to them because states make their own laws and then it may get to the highest court. And they say, well, actually, no, this maybe is in violation of the constitution or I'm adding this part. They send it back to the lower courts or to the states. Right. Right. Well, uh, so we have a system where it's a system, it's called federalism, right? Where we are actually, it's very unique. It makes the United States very unique in that we are sort of subject to two different layers of uh, government. We have our state governments who have certain powers, and then we have our federal government, which has certain other uh, powers. And then you could actually add in a third layer, which is we have the United States Constitution, which places limits on both states and federal government in terms of what kinds of laws that they can uh, regulate. So it's a very complicated system and one that's, you know, not always clear. There's lots of gray area of where the state powers end and the federal government has, you know, say over the states. It's called the supremacy of the federal government in certain situations. If the federal government and the state government disagree, the federal government uh, wins. Uh, and then, as I said, and then there's the, the backdrop of the Constitution. So if, it, we, if the court concludes that a law violates an individual right, for example, then Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if it's the state or the federal government, either one, the court could come in and say that law is unconstitutional and we are going to uh, overturn it. So as far as why maybe states should know better, I think in some cases it can be complicated. They really might not know, but we definitely have seen situations too where uh, states you know, have good reason to suspect that perhaps their their law is problematic in some way, but they pass it anyway as a way to kind of force the Supreme Court to take a look at it or maybe hoping the court might change uh, their mind. We've certainly been seeing this with the mm -hmm. with a lot of abortion uh, laws that have been passed sort of kind of knowingly uh, ones that are, if not in direct violation, certainly testing the limits of um, what they can do and you know, with sort of the hope of trying to tee up a case for the Supreme Court. Let me get your thoughts on this, Professor West, because I, I know you're following this. And of course, that Mississippi law that 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 bans that had banned abortions after 15 weeks. And, and again, with Roe v. Wade and just the complexity of this, this has been uh, the Constitution says women have a right to seek an abortion. And we've had states try and, and come up with different, I guess, provisions related to that. How do you see this? I mean, it's a different Supreme Court makeup, obviously, we just talked about. Um, what will what will the justice have to decide here? Right. So the court will hear arguments in the beginning of December for this challenge to the Mississippi law. It's really, as I think we probably are, are all pretty aware, one of many out there that have put a challenge to the court's now 50-year-old um, um, uh, finding of that there is a constitutional right as part of our rights to privacy and of bodily autonomy uh, to terminate a pregnancy. And this case does indeed uh, bring a very direct challenge to the court's finding in, in Roe versus Wade and its follow-up, its most significant follow-up, the Casey versus Planned uh, Parenthood case in 1990 uh, too. The, the state here is indeed asking the court to reconsider that case and making the argument that it was wrongly decided and that there is no such right as a right to terminate a pregnancy in uh, the Constitution. Um, you know, on the one hand, you could argue that 
uh, for most of the last many decades since that decision uh, came down, that it's certainly one that there's been great uh, debate about, that it's not one we've come to you know, have generalized agreement about. So the idea that perhaps there's more to talk about, uh, I think you could say uh, you know, is, is one side of the argument. The other side is that we've had 50 years of this, people have grown to rely on it that for, uh, you know, for the most part, this has actually been a very workable standard. Courts have not had trouble uh, enforcing um, these, this law or the, this uh, interpretation of a constitutional right that it is in keeping with evolving standards of what we have learned in other areas to be our constitutional rights to make um, intimate and fundamental decisions about our personal relationships, whether it's who we marry or um, whether it is, you know, to have, you know, the, be able to have custody and care of our children, right? These other rights, um, the right to not have uh, children by having uh, open access to contraception, uh, you know, other rights that I think people consider very core are all sort of bundled together in the same concept. So um, I think there will be a challenge here of if you, if the could unravel just this one part uh, without pulling the thread to mm -hmm. tear it sort of all apart? Or is there, um, you know, just something very different about this aspect of the right? So there's, it's a, it's a heavy case. So there's a lot in it. And, um, and certainly a lot of things that a lot of people care very deeply about on, on all sides. And whatever decision the high court makes, which would come out actually probably next year sometime, 2022, uh, through your lens, you see that as either well, it could spur either other states possibly to enact such provisions and laws, or it could maybe put an end to some other to some other challenges to Roe v. Wade. Right. I mean, so most likely this is a case that we wouldn't get an, a decision from the court until I would presume uh, the end of its term, which is in June of, of 2022. So it'll be a while before um, we hear. But depending on what they do, uh, it can have very big ramifications. There's a number of states that sort of have laws that have built in with them sort of, um, you know, in case of Roe being overturned, break glass here, and here's this law already teed up and ready mm -hmm. to go into effect should the, should the court take this uh, step. So things, you know, some of the changes could be very swift uh, if, if that were to happen. And there's certainly every reason to think there would be you know, other states that would would have dis debates about whether they should pass um, similar laws. Another thing that's really interesting about this case is mm -hmm. that you had asked about the process to getting a case heard. Um, the the petition for, to the court for this case to be heard first came to the court in uh, the summer of 2020. Uh, of, of 2020. Mm -hmm. And that petition looked very different than the brief that the court that the state filed with the court this fall, it was much more, you know, there might be a way to uh, work this uh, state law in the framework that we exist with Roe and, and uh, Casey, um, and not necessarily such a direct challenge to say the whole thing needs to go. And uh, considering that uh, June of 2020, you know, was a, a few months before the death of Justice Ginsburg and the re her replacement by uh, Justice Barrett, uh, certainly has some people saying that, you know, they've taken a very much more aggressive stance uh, this fall than they did when they first originally approach, approached the court. What other cases are you following? Oh, there's so many. It really is. I feel like, you know, we're often, it's one of those things we're often saying they're having such a big term, but this uh, semester, I think, or this year, it's really, uh, really quite an incredible amount of, of cases of, of that will have great effects on people that um, we're seeing uh, at the court. You mentioned uh, guns uh, coming before the court. The court is indeed uh, hearing its first major challenge mm -hmm. to a piece of gun control regulation than we've had in more than than a decade, they're considering a uh, challenge to a New York state law that's more than 100 years old mm -hmm. that places certain limitations on uh, the individual right to uh, get a license to um, conceal, carry a handgun outside the home. Uh, the challengers here have brought a Second Amendment challenge saying that this law violates uh, the right to uh, uh, 
uh, bear arms in the Second Amendment, saying it's, it's more than just the right to keep arms in your home, uh, which the court had decided in, a, in an earlier case, uh, but rather that you have a right to bear them, meaning to carry them outside, out into the world without having to go through as many hoops as New York is uh, requiring. And so um, the potential for the court to really take a huge step in expanding what we think of and know of as this right of uh, gun ownership is uh, is definitely a huge one. So that comes to mind as well. And even today, the justices are hearing a case involving a death, a Texas death row inmate, uh, John Henry Ramirez, who wants to have his his pastor uh, in the in the chamber with him as he is scheduled to be put to death. Uh, but there's been a stay of execution, so he cannot be executed until this has been resolved through the nation's high court, which could, as you put it, June of, of next year, possibly. Uh, that's right. And, you know, and there's a number of cases that touch in one way or another, and this is one of them, uh, about our religious freedoms, uh, the rights people have uh, to exercise their religion in a number of different uh, scenarios. Again, when you're asking about how they pick their cases, this mm-hmm. is clearly an issue that's very important to a number of the current justices. So, yes, the idea of what are your uh, free exercise rights in this, these, you know, these final moments before an, ex- an execution, how far do they extend is a question the court um, you know, took the case on that they are interested in. They'll be talking about you know, school vouchers mm-hmm. for religious schools, um, issues of the intersection between individual uh, religious uh, expression and you know, on government controlled property in a case out of um, Boston. Um, so this is a this is you know religion in all sorts of different forms is is another broad topic that the court's going to be thinking about a lot this year. A lot to watch. Professor Sonia West is the Otis Brumley Distinguished Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. She focuses on the First Amendment and the United States Supreme Court. As always, Professor, you bring the knowledge. That's that's why you do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Rose. Thank you. Take care now. Bye bye. And Closer Look begins with a C. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, there are millions of photographs housed in the Library of Congress. And there are millions that depict horrific and painful chapters of, this, of, this, of our nation. We know that. It's not clear of the exact date, but there is a black and white photo. And it shows black teens and young boys clearing a, a massive field. So think about this. It's probably in the 30s or 40s. And they are wearing the oversized prison clothing, you know, the kind with the wide horizontal stripes. Here's a caption that reads underneath that photo. Black orphan children and juvenile offenders could be bought to serve as laborers for white planters in many southern states from 1865 until the 1940s. That is a form of convict leasing. And you'll learn more about that in a moment and why it's a focus of the Atlanta-based National Center for Civil and Human Rights, it's called the Truth and Transformation Initiative. And joining me now is Dr. Kalinda Lee, head of programs and exhibitions at the center and also leading the Bellwood Quarry Community Memorialization Project, which you're also going to hear about in just a moment. Dr. Lee, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Let's set. Uh, let's get some information for our listeners who may not be familiar. I gave a very, very brief definition about convict leasing. There's so much more to this. Uh, share share this with our listeners. Sure. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit first about what the whole project is. Sure. The National Center for Civil and Human Rights initiated a project called Truth and Transformation about a year ago. And within the context of that project, what we're basically saying is, if we look at the truths of history and understand how they provide context for the moment that we're living in today, then maybe we have a great opportunity to actually transform ourselves into becoming a more equitable society. And so we've got two threads under that umbrella. One has to do with the 1906 race massacre, and the other has to do with convict leasing at Bellwood Quarry and Chattahoochee Brick Company on the west side um, of Atlanta. And that's, of course, what brings me to you today. In that context, what we're really talking about is this notion that 
after the Emancipation Proclamation, well, really after the end of the Civil War, when people were in fact emancipated, um, who had been held in bondage, um, the South in particular faced a critical problem, right? And that was the absence of free labor that had been building this country and this country's economy. And so there is a provision which says that people can no longer be held in involuntary servitude mm -hmm. except as penalty for a crime. And so there was a loophole to re-enslave people by charging them with all kinds of um, trumped up charges. Like for example, African-Americans were swept up often uh, with charges of things like vagrancy. So if you mm -hmm. refuse to work for no wages or very little wages, then you're a vagrant and then you can be imprisoned um, and forced into labor. And in addition to that, um, it was also the case that even when people were guilty of crimes, they would be sentenced to hard labor for ridiculously long periods mm -hmm. of time, indefinite periods of time. So one, we're talking about that and the way that that happened in Atlanta at these particular sites. And two, we're talking about the atrocities that were committed against those people while they were being held in those conditions, because often people were beaten, starved to death. There's really quite traumatic documentation of the things that happened here. And I'm reminded of the PBS documentary uh, based on the book um, Slavery by Another Name, which tells all of this. This story. And a lot mm -hmm. of folks may find that hard to believe. Well, slavery was over. Well, this, that's why I was slavery by another name. <laughs> you know, this was, and I remember reading about uh, when you mentioned these, the ridiculous sentences um, that folks were, if it was public intoxication, and would be given two to five years of hard, hard labor. Absolutely. And so what happens in that context, like the, the caption that you were describing, is once people were placed um, in state custody, right, incarcerated in this way, then they were leased out as essentially the property of the state. Mm -hmm. And so they could be leased to private landlords or in the case of Atlanta, um, the brick company, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about, mm -hmm. or quarry owners and et cetera. And for a, a nominal fee to the state, um, these, these private um, landowners or factory owners or whatever the case might be would have essentially a slave labor force um, once again. Let's talk about the Chattahoochee Brick Company because it was profiled in the Slavery by Another, slavery by another Name project that I mentioned. And it's also been, you know, a lot of folks around here want, you know, sometimes recognition and, and acknowledgement may not seem that difficult to do, but you always run up against a barrier because of it. Um, but I'll let you handle it from there. And, and, well, and indeed. Um, so the Chattahoochee Brick Company was actually a company that was founded by a mayor of Atlanta. So James English. Mm -hmm who was a mayor of Atlanta, thinking about double dealing, um, was, right, you know, the person who the chief of police reports to, right, um, was um, owner of this company that made bricks that really paved the city of Atlanta. I mean, these bricks are all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, think about this city that had been burned and ravaged in war and then needed to rebuild itself. And so what he did was he leased people who were incarcerated by the state and the city um, and forced them into labor um, for his company. And the Chattahoochee Brick Company was a particularly egregious offender, not only for participating in the convict labor system, but most especially for the ways in which the people who um, who were forced to serve the Chattahoochee Company were treated. I mean, people were literally, I am not exaggerating or being hyperbolic, were literally worked to death. Mm -hmm. By the way, that slavery by another name is from a friend of the program, Doug Blackman, who's been on this, this show many times and, and talked about, listen, folks, as you mentioned too, Dr. Lee, these bricks are all over Atlanta. We're not talking about just a few hundred or a few thousand. We're talking about hundreds of millions of these bricks. 
Indeed. And I think that that's one of the reasons why for some people it's so hard to get their minds around memorialization, right? Because what we know is that this kind of inequity and these kinds of crimes against humanity really um, were so widespread, so pervasive that they can't really just be isolated to a single moment or a Mm -hmm. small space. If we're going to deal with this, we have to really reckon with the fact that they literally, in this case, right, built the foundation upon which we stand on this city. And so it is no small matter to think about acknowledging that, reckoning with that, and trying to make some repair for that. And that is at the core of the Truth and Transformation Initiative. That's right. And so in this case, the thread of the work that is focused on the west side of Atlanta with regards to convict leasing, both at the Chattahoochee Brick Company and at the Bellwood Quarry, where we know that this this happened as well, right, and is now the site of the city's largest Mm -hmm. uh, public green space. Um, uh, It's not quite as well documented as um, the Chattahoochee Brick Company, but there's certainly no doubt. In both of those instances, um, what we're saying is that we need to build a multi-sector coalition of stakeholders who can come together uh, as peers in the process of figuring out what it means to meaningfully memorialize this past. And that's a lot to say, right? Because first of all, especially meaningful, because depending on whom you ask, you get a different answer on what that should look like. And also then you'll get folks who want to throw in, well, are you trying to somehow create, here we go with those, those, those letters, some CRT movement in this initiative. Let's be clear, because folks think that way. That's true. And so what we say is, you know, when I described to you what truth and transformation was about telling the truth of history in order to understand it as a context for the past, I'm trained as an historian. So I would say that's doing good history. That's doing evidence-based history, right? When we look at the past, just like when we look at the present, you're not asked to tell, you know, the truth, some of the truth and a partial truth. You're asked to look at all of it and, you know, right. And when we look at all of it and provide context for all of it and base that on evidence, that's archival records, that's oral histories, that's all kinds of things. Then what we understand is to leave this part out is to actually not be telling the truth. We are alighting and miseducating people, right? The voice you hear is Dr. Kalinda Lee. She's head of programs and exhibitions at the Atlanta-based National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And we're also going to now want to shift. I want to talk about the Bellwood Quarry Community Memorization Project because, as you mentioned, this is now at Atlanta's biggest park, which just opened a few months ago. Um, what is the is there some opposition that you all are, are facing with this? Well, at this particular point in time, no. Um, What we've done is we are attempting to build on work that has been done before, right? So we're not the first people. The National Center for Civil and Human Rights is not the first organization that has said, this is important history that needs to be reckoned with. What we are trying to do is to be a convener of folks who have been engaged in this conversation already and to think in a specific and strategic way about how we listen to each other's voices to create that, as you mentioned earlier, that meaningful memorialization. Very often, you know, I'm sure you know, right, the, one of the ways that this work happens is that we might have a municipality or a major funder or a corporate entity that has a large, I would argue, outsized voice and making this decision. And then some community voices might be sprinkled in there in an advisory capacity or some such. What the center is really committed to doing is saying, we are engaged in a process of peership. We are not the boss of this and nobody else at the table is is the boss of this, but it really is going to take all of our perspectives and resources to create something that is going to be meaningful to First of all, the people who are most aggrieved, right? The descendants mm-hmm. of people who suffered this directly. The communities that have this as a, as a legacy and context of, of how they came to be in, in some of the positions that they're in now. Um, and also to understand that beyond that, all of us who participate in this landscape, who live here, 
are going to either by going to the park, be able to see this memorial and learn something meaningful and important about it and how it how this, this kind of engagement got us to the place where we are now, and some other threads that we are considering um, as really pivotal and crucial to this. So like, for example, what does it look like to have a curricular portion of this? So that whether you go to the park or not, mm-hmm. you understand this important history that's been left out of the official record. And we correct that moving forward. And that's really a sweet spot for the center because, of course, that's one of the things that we do best. Let me get your thoughts on this. Through your lens, how do you begin to bring folks together and start talking about sharing what you all call, a lot of folks call, the difficult history here? Whether it's convict leasing, slavery, um, the, the Holocaust. I don't know through my own maybe I'm not supposed to say this, my own personal opinion is about we should, history is there for a reason, right? And we should discuss it. But why through your lens is this, do people, there's so much opposition about how we disseminate and share difficult history of this nation? Well, to answer your first question, it's important because it's the truth. It's important because what history does for us is provide context for the present. So that's the so what. The so what for us is if we understand, for example, even in terms of the difficult parts, right? If we understand how those things came to be, what the decision-making around that was, what the motivators were in terms of the benefits of behaving in certain ways that are really problematic, then we can have some hope in addressing ourselves to finding other ways of engaging with one another and respectfully understanding the perspectives that other folks are bringing because their experiences might be radically different from ours, right? The other piece of it though, in terms of the fight is that it is not necessarily the case that people are always studying history for information. People are often studying history to feel good about themselves, right? And narratives um, that, for example, promote their culture Mm -hmm. as superior to others or to um, affirm notions that that they are in positions of superiority and dominance, perhaps only by their own efforts and not because there are structural systems that support them or that their nation is worthy of being supported no matter what it does or whatever that whatever the context of previous behavior is. So people are actually utilizing history in these ways that are, are very propagandistic. And you see this all over the world, right? It's the reason why in many countries the, the narrative of history, telling history, is controlled mm-hmm. from centralized government um, sources sometimes. That is very true. And we could name some nations too, we, but we'd be here for at least another hour as it relates to Bellwood Quarry and mean in the park some folks have talked about well let's have these historical markers which bring everything into context some folks say that's fine I know there have been some some sites around here around Atlanta that we have those markers uh, is that a is that the beginning is that for the public for folks that may not want to come to the center so the beginning is actually not that, right? So and rather than um, making a decision about what this has to look like and then sort of justifying that decision, what we're doing is coming at it from the other direction and saying, mm-hmm. what is this community of stakeholder organizations um, in this, this peership relationship that I talked to you about? What are they saying in terms of the constituents that they represent about what matters to people, what's gonna be meaningful to people? What can people encounter that they don't get to choose to ignore so easily? Um, one of the things we know about markers as an example is that very often people just ignore them on the landscape, right? There are a bunch near where I live. I live in the sort of east side of Atlanta area. And I, I'm you, a historian. You don't and think I they serve a purpose? I don't read them. You don't think they serve a purpose at all, Dr. Lee? Or, or not? It's just not enough. I think it's not enough. But also, I would say to you, I'm one. Right. I'm one person with an informed opinion, but not the only opinion. Mm-hmm. And so part of the reason that we're bringing people together in this way is to say, I could come up with something that based on my training and all might have some validity, but let's not do it that way. Let's really engage with the stakeholders to see. So we have stakeholders like the city of Atlanta, um, we, but also the Chattahoochee Brick uh, Company um, Descendants Coalition. 
um, nonprofit organizations, funding organizations, educational organizations, so that we can gather the right information about uh, what the information, what the gather the information about the information, the content to get the content right, get the history right. Also understand um, what works and what doesn't work in terms of people really paying attention and feeling represented, and really thinking outside of the box, right? So maybe it's markers, maybe there's a large monument, maybe there's a space. Mm -hmm. for performing arts pieces around this that are created by grassroots collectives, who knows? Um, but we are working deliberately in order to, to find a solution to that question that's gonna be what we call, when I say meaningful, one of the things I like to say all the time is sticky, right? So this kind of information that feels like it matters to you, that you can apply to your current context and that you won't soon forget. I have a question, more of a comment uh, from a listener who wants to know, should the state of Georgia apologize for, or to say Atlanta apologize for convict leasing? I think it's always a good beginning in terms of acknowledging wrongs in the past to apologize. Um, I don't think that it's sufficient, mm -hmm. but it certainly can help in a process of reparation and healing, because what you're basically acknowledging is that this was not right. And we have to remember that in many instances, one of the reasons that people fight so hard about these histories not being shared is that there's not necessarily an acknowledgement that what happened to these people is even wrong, mm -hmm. is even bad. Because you right? hear, well, it's that was just okay. the time. I, we've heard, well, that was a time back then. And well, I'll let you say it because if I say it, then oh, Rose Scott's giving her opinion. But <laughs> Yeah, we do get into a little bit of moral relativism about the past, right? So, you know, I, I would say that when we're talking about human rights atrocities, mm -hmm. um, we understand even if they had been normalized, that there is a strong indication that people still understand that they are problematic. When we talk about issues like enslavement, there are reams upon reams upon reams, thousands, millions of pages of documents that clarify for us that while it was the norm and the standard, people understood that it was problematic and they certainly didn't want people who were not enslaved to be enslaved and considered it uh, the most horrendous fate. So it is not, it is not evidentiarily mm -hmm. true that people didn't know that this wasn't okay. And probably that's why it's not in your textbooks. That's why it's not in your mainstream histories, even though it was a really pervasive system. Oh, this conversation could go on. What else, what else can folks expect from the Truth and Transformation Initiative if they want to find out more information, Dr. Lee? Well, they can go to our website at civilandhumanrights.org and see what we've got going on. By the way, uh, we have a free admission coming up for Veterans Day for veterans um, for, for the 11th, 13th, and 14th. So you can always check that website and see what's happening within, uh, by, and at the center. But also, um, we will begin, be beginning to have some community engagements so that even people who aren't in the kind of center of that stakeholder agreement can show up and share their opinions. All right, Dr. Kalinda Lee, Head of Programs and Exhibitions at the Atlanta-based National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. It was a joy. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And remember, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as on our podcast because it's free. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.